You can either work in the business or you can work on the business. They have the knowledge and the skill to be successful. Yesterday is gone and tomorrow has yet to come. Dive all in on the next chapter of your life. Welcome to The Boutique with Collective 54, a podcast for founders and leaders of boutique professional services firms. For those that aren't familiar with us, Collective 54 is the first mastermind community to help you grow, scale, and exit your firm bigger and faster. My name is Greg Alexander. I'm the founder, and I'll be your host today. And on this episode, we're going to address our members who would like to sell their firm someday. I'm going to talk to them about a concept of developing a deep universe of buyers, really understanding who might be interested in acquiring your firm and how to go about doing that. And we've got a great guest, David Jorgensen, and he is the CEO of Equitech, and he's a member of Collective 54. And for those that aren't uh, in, uh, familiar with Equitech, is they're really the leader in the space. They probably do more transactions for professional services firms than anybody else. And, and, and they've developed a way to uh, really develop a deep and broad set of potential buyers. So with that, David, if you wouldn't mind, uh, please give yourself a, an introduction to the audience. Great, I appreciate it, Greg, and happy to be here. And thanks for uh, thanks for inviting me to this conversation. It's a very interesting topic. Um, so, as far as uh, as far as an intro to me and Equitex, so I've been doing this for about twenty five years um, in various uh, in various forms. Uh, and when I say this, I mean um, helping uh, founder owners uh, and other owners of of knowledge economy businesses understand and approach uh, the market for their firms. Uh, and so we always do this in the context of knowledge economy firms, which I, and what I mean by that is uh, firms that are delivering expertise uh, to, the, to the marketplace. Uh, Equitech is a firm that does this globally. So we, um, we have about 70 professionals uh, doing this work in North America, Europe, and Asia. Um, and we've been doing it for about uh, 15 years now. Um, as you said, we do. Uh, we consider ourselves a leader in the space, uh, and we consider ourselves to be um, uh, specialists in helping founder owners, entrepreneurs understand and address uh, the community of potential buyers out there. Okay, fantastic, and thanks for that. So, this idea of developing a universe of buyers. Most of our members are first-time founders, and they're so good at what they do because they're very, very, very focused. However, when it comes to selling your firm, there's such a thing as too much focus. You can be, it can have a little tunnel vision, and opening yourself up to exploring, you know, people that might be interested in you that that they didn't normally think about. This is a foreign concept to them. It was to me when I sold my firm, and I now have the power of retrospection. And, and thank goodness, um, I did throw a wide net because. The firm that ended up buying me was someone I never knew before, and that was because the investment banker did a fantastic job. So could you maybe start at, I don't know, 30,000 feet and explain to our audience why this is so important and your experience, 25 years doing this, what normally happens as a result of throwing a wider net, so to speak? Yeah, I think it's a good point that you started with to talk about tunnel vision because um, you know, when we say that, we don't mean it in a negative way because there's a lot of focus that is required for um, for successfully, um, you know, growing a, a a business. It's difficult to do, it's hard to do, and it requires a lot of laser focus. And so, what that means is that you typically understand, um, you know, a narrow slice of the market that, in which you compete. 
Um, and so when you think, when the first thought about who might be interested in my company is probably the firms that you compete with or that you know or that do what you do. Hmm. And we always think about it uh, and so, sort of try and think about it in exactly the opposite way, hmm. which is who can't do what you do who wants to. <laughs> uh, and so that is typically where our best deals come from. Hmm. Uh, it's It comes from a combination of um, – of two firms that can't do what, you know, can't, can't execute the strategy separately. They need each other to do it. And the reality is that nobody knows who that is, or you wouldn't have to run a process. You wouldn't have to go ask the market what they think. If you know who the, if you know who the only buyer is, then you just call them. So um, we always think about starting with, you know, call it whatever cliche you want to say, call, call it a blank sheet of paper. But you, as a, as a market participant, um, the, the point is that focus helps you grow, but it doesn't help you sell mm. because um, the best deals are built from putting two, two pieces together that may not seem like they fit right off the bat, but they make a, they make a bigger strategy uh, possible in the future. Mm. That's interesting. You know, um, one plus one equals three, another cliche for you. You know, one thing that I've learned from Equitex research in particular, which I think you guys do a great job of, um, is this concept of adjacencies, which is an, maybe an expanded explanation um, of what we were just talking about. So, like in my case, SBI, my old firm, we were in the sales consulting space, but there were marketing agencies, which was an adjacency that were interested in us. There were product development firms that was an adjacency that were interested in us, and so on and so on. And... Sometimes these boutique providers in and of themselves want to expand their business by expanding into an adjacency, and therefore you become more attractive. And we used, well, my banker used this thing called a market map as a way to identify who those adjacencies are. Could you, do you use a tool like that or something similar to it to try to identify who these buyers are? And, and if so, would you, would you mind explaining to our audience kind of what that tool is and how it works? Yeah, I think... Um we do, and the the way we think about it is in um, sort of uh, axes of of uh, customer relationship and then service. Hmm. Okay, so there's um, there's two two ways in a very a very simple framework to think about adjacencies. One is doing something different for the same customer, um, and the other is doing the same for a different customer. Hmm. So if, and you can think about, um, you know, a two-dimensional chart showing how those things interrelate. And so um, adjacencies can be in either one of those axes and they can, e- they can equally or either of them or both can drive uh, transactional interests. But if you think about the, the, the easiest way to start a conversation with a potential buyer is on one of those two dimensions, which is, which is to say, um, we can help you do more to your current client base or on the other hand, we can help you access new clients. And if you dig down deep into the most, you know, like, you know, sort of immediate buyer interest when we're selling a business, a lot of times it comes down to one of those two things, mm. which is I want to I want to be in those logos, or I want to do what you do with my clients. Yeah. Because if I can do what you do well, then I can double my revenue per client. Yeah. At the this in this category, so. The e- I think the simplest way to think about adjacencies in mapping the market is is on those two dimensions. Do you do you expand my client set, or do you expand my my product set at current clients? 
Is, is that is that the kind of thing you were thinking of? Yeah, that's a great way to frame it. I, what I love about it, it's easy to understand and it makes common sense. Let's let's stay on that for a moment. Our members are boutiques, which we define as 25 to 250 employees. Um, when they get bought by a larger firm, a market leader, usually the reason, the rationale for the deal anyways is, I don't know, pick a company, Accenture, somebody like that. They're their pitch to the founder entrepreneur is, we don't do what you do, but if we had you inside our firm, we could walk you into all our clients, which due to our size, we have a lot more reach than you do. You know, we could 2X, 3X, 4X your business or whatever it is over a period of time. That's usually what happens when they get approached that way. Um, our founders get a little intimidated by that. They they love being an entrepreneurs and founders, so the idea of working for a mega company and having a boss and things like that is is uh, a little unattractive. But they balance that out with, my goodness, imagine if I had access to those clients. You know, that many more people would get exposure to my brilliance, my expertise. So, for the founder that's a little hesitant to go there, what counsel would you give him or her? Well, you know, a lot of our clients. Um reach that stage. Mm. It's a very common stage to, to get to it. And I call it distribution. Mm. So what you're looking, what you need is, is better distribution. So you hit a ceiling and the ceiling is comprised of the, who, you know, who your network is, you know, where your offices are, you know, you need, you, if, if only more, like you said, if only more people could learn about what we know and what we do, you know, our opportunity is unlimited and that's distribution. And so Accenture is a good example. It's a, it's a, it's an incredibly powerful distribution mm. platform. Um, and so I think what, I, what we counsel our clients to think through very carefully is if that's what you need, then that's how you get it. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, and it's, um, it becomes a, a less of an emotional um, conversation when it is seen, a, you know, in the framework of, well, it's just a necessary step. Mm. Every company goes through it. Um, and it's, it's a, it is an absolutely universal developmental step in professional services. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no people business um, that can't that doesn't have to find a way to break through that. Mm. Now they don't they don't all need to be bought by Accenture. That's not the solution to everybody's distribution challenges. But um, there's no there's no there's no quicker way to increase your your distribution network. Um, and there's lots of different um, there are lots of different scales to that. So there are lots of distribution solutions that can be a lot less um, intimidating than an acquisition by Accenture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is a that is a uh, an easy an easy example to to um, con- co- to contemplate, but it is also a, quite an extreme mm-hmm. outcome mm-hmm. if you think about the universe of potential acquirers. There there are distribution networks out there that are much less. Uh, Less intimidating, less less extensive, maybe, but also maybe a better custom fit. And that you know that's but you know back to the question of finding, you know, building buyer lists. Mm. You know, you can you can build a list that has um, a company like Accenture on it, and then a much more um, user friendly middle market, you know, sl- you know smaller firm that um, that can offer a choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. There there are scales to distribution and. And you're correct that in the evolutionary cycle of a boutique, eventually you get to that point and you can build it yourself, which is going to cost a lot of money and take a lot of time, 
or you can partner um, by selling all or part of your company to somebody that has a distribution network already in place. Um, you've, you guys have done so many deals. And if, if the hypothesis of doing a deal is distribution, and these founders and members are deciding whether to sell or not to sell based in part on what life will be like as part of a new firm, a larger firm. You know, looking back on all the deals you've done right now, are the founders happy inside these larger distribution networks? I mean, how's it working out for them? Most of the time, um, if it's set up properly, uh, there is satisfaction. Hmm. Um, it when we see uh, when we see founders, owners, sellers uh, become unhappy, it's when uh, they there was a misunderstanding or a miscommunication about what life was going to be like. You know, it's that it's that this isn't what you said it was, mm-hmm. and we, you know that you know that has happened. It's rare. It has happened where where a, a buyer will paint a picture that turns out not to be accurate. Um, and so, you know, our job is to provide a range of options and a range of choices so that, you know, a, a seller, a founder knows what they're, they're stepping into. Mm. And as long as it doesn't have to be, a, you know, a situation that they want to be in permanently, mm. but it has to match up with what they thought. And really, the issues come in, um, and I, they're, they're quite rare, actually. But they they happen when when the expectations don't meet the promise, or the the reality doesn't meet the promise. Um, and so the the point of a process, the point of a buyer's list, is, uh, you know, one to provide certainty of an outcome, uh, casting a wide net, as you say, and the other is to provide choice mm. and to provide alternatives. Mm. And so you as a seller should be able to balance and match up multiple options that include all of the variables that drive a deal, price, mm. um, structure, but also what does this company like to work for? Mm. You know, what, what are the, do I want to work with these people for um, three, five, 10 years into the future? Do I want my team uh, to work here? Is, is this a place where my team can thrive? And I think that's, Part of the uh, part of the process, um, but really, it, it doesn't have to be um, the kind of company you would build. It doesn't have to be the kind of company you already built, but it ha- but it has to be what you expect. Yeah, it has to be accurately described. Yeah, that's good advice. You know, one of the things that you've helped bring, um, as well as your peers in your industry is a whole new universe of buyers known as the private equity buyer. For the longest time, professional services, most of the buyers and the activity was in the area of a strategic buyer. Um, But lots of deal activity is in the private equity space now. And our members are constantly getting called by these people with, you know, big promises, et cetera. And there's confusion around one particular thing that I'd love to get your perspective on. Maybe this is the last topic we can talk about today. And that is, there's the platform, you know, a, a PE firm comes to you and says, I'm going to back you and want you to be the platform. And then we're going to go do a bunch of acquisitions underneath you as a platform provider or platform, the platform, I should say. And then there's the other scenario where there already is a platform and that platform is now coming to you as a smaller firm and they're trying to use you as as a tuck-in, so to speak. This, this difference between a platform and a tuck-in, 
and and getting these inbound inquiries from private equity investors. Could you help maybe bring some clarity to this confusing thing? You know, who are these private equity people? Why are they now all of a sudden interested in professional services? When you might you consider being a platform? When it might be okay to be a tuck-in? Yeah. It's a, it's a great topic. It's a big topic. Um, so I think what's important to recognize about private equity is that it, it has changed a lot in the last 10, 20, 30 years. So it isn't um, at all like it was in the 80s and 90s with leveraged, cap, leveraged financing, corporate rating, kind of re, you know buying and restructuring inefficiently run companies. Uh, it just isn't like that anymore, um, particularly in this market. So what private equity uh, firms are that are interested in professional services are, is they're very experienced professional business owners. They're not completely different from founder entrepreneurs themselves. Hmm. So private equity firms care about the same things that founders care about. um, And they want their companies to be healthy and growing, and they want their companies to be excellent places to work that attract talent. Um, that's the first thing to recognize is um, they're not a different species. They approach the world slightly differently. They think about different things. They're, they're, they're unique as individuals often, but they're not a different species. The mm. uh, second thing to know is that uh, they're, 10 years ago, there weren't as many private equity firms and there were a lot more companies to buy. And so they didn't have to do anything that was that was seen as difficult. Mm. So, ten years ago, their you know, professional services people dominated business models, particularly those that didn't have recurring revenue that sort of worked on the contract basis and had to um, sort of resell all their revenue every year, like consult some consulting firms do. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't need to worry about that part of the market because there was a lot of other markets to go, you know, build a business in. Um, so we've seen in our business, we've seen private equities become much more interested in, um, in professional services and knowledge economy businesses in the last five years. And I think that's great for the market. Uh, it's great for the participants and the entrepreneurs in this market. Um, and so what, what that means is that private equities have started to make sense of people driven business models and they're not afraid of them anymore. Um, which is, I think, to their credit, because I don't think there's anything to be afraid of if you understand it. So we've gone from having two or three PE firms that kind of got it to, you know, a few more that get it and a whole lot more that are trying to get it. <laughs> and so what that means is they're flooding the market. They're flooding entrepreneurs with outreach and with cold calls. And it's very confusing as a business owner to make sense of it all. Um, and I sympathize. And I think that's it's difficult to to break through that confusion. What I will say about private equity firms is their business model is to um, is to find companies at a reasonable price, grow them, combine them, make them bigger, and sell it as a larger entity. That requires them as a core component of their business model to explore the lowest price mm. at which you will sell your business. That's what they're doing. So when they're when they're reaching out to a business owner, they are prospecting for somebody who will be interested in the conversation, and then they will be trying to explore. They're not trying to cheat you. They're not trying to to um, they're not trying to trick you, because they want to work with you. They want to partner with you. 
but they are trying to understand at the lowest price at which you'll sell their business, sell mm-hmm. your business. Um, and so you have to you have to just approach it in that spirit. Um, as far as the the difference between a platform and a tuck-in, it's critical to the strategy. So when I say that they're looking to acquire, grow, and then sell a bit, you know, a a business, they usually do that by buying one anchor. Um, uh, anchor company. So the, that what you call the platform, which is what we call it as well. So the platform company or the anchor company is the first investment in a strategy. Mm. So if they say, for example, we want to build a, a company in Salesforce consulting, they will, fu- they will try and find a platform, which is the first investment, which is the, which is what they will then um, use as the, as the focal point for adding onto. Mm. And they will try to add onto that, to that first investment through organic growth uh, through you know business operations and strategy as as any as any owner would, and by buying other companies as tuck-ins and combining it with that platform company, hmm. um, I tend to think that uh, it's neither better to be the platform or the tuck-in. Both can be very attractive and very reasonable exits for a founder entrepreneur. I think uh, there's a fair bit more pressure with with being the platform. You'll be asked to to work harder than you did when you were, when you owned the company yourself, probably. And so you need to want to really dig in. You need to want to chase 30, 40, 80% growth, you know, per year. And so you have to be excited about it. If not, then, you know, potentially it's better to, to, you know, to, if you were to sell your business, to sell it to a, uh, to a platform business and as a tuck in, um, because you might, you know, you it might allow you some more flexibility in what you do after the deal. Hmm. Very educational. Thank you. Listen, we're 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 at our time. I could go on and on with you here, um, but there's a lot of confusion around this, and I think our members would benefit greatly by spending more time with Equitech and and David and his coworker Greg Fink, who's also a member. So if you have any interest in, in exiting your firm and you want to talk to them about building a universe of buyers, you can see them on the member portal and reach out to them directly. But David, on behalf of the membership, I appreciate you being here today and sharing what you've, what you've learned over the years. It was very valuable, and thanks for being here. Great, and thanks again for the invite. I enjoyed the conversation. Okay, great. And for those that are interested in this topic and others like it, pick up a copy of the book, The Boutique, How to Start, Scale, and Sell a Professional Services Firm. And if you are listening and you're not a member and you want to meet uh, exceptional people like David and learn more about these types of things, consider joining our mastermind community. You can find it at collective54.com. Thanks again. Take care.